few years ago when uh, Tan Jeff, Tanisaro Biku, uh, came to New York, uh, he gave a talk, a series of talks on uh, the forest ajans. Uh, as you may know, uh, there was a real rebirth, a renaissance uh, in Thailand in the 20th century in Buddhist practice. Uh, these monks, ajans, teachers, uh, were part of the system in Thailand, uh, the monastic order, and they broke away from the monastic order uh, in Thailand, the primary monastic orders in Thailand. The way they broke away from the way Buddhism was being practiced uh, because they were dissatisfied. Uh, they felt that Buddhist practice had become more of a religion than a practice. It had become institutionalized. It wasn't the true Dhamma. It wasn't the true Dhamma. And they were interested in the true Dhamma, the true Dhamma that leads to awakening. So what they did is they went off into the forests and set up monasteries in the forest. And there was a great, as I said, a great uh, rebirth of uh, the true Dhamma, the Buddhist teachings in Thailand. Uh, those teachers taught in Thailand and uh, we've been fortunate in that uh, some of those monks and teachers came to the West, uh, like Tanjef, and started monasteries here. Tanjef was with Ajahn Suwat, who was a student of Ajahn Mun. Ajahn Mun was one of the, the leaders of the movement of forest Ajahns. He was Ajahn Lee's teacher. Ajahn Lee was Ajahn Fuang's teacher. Ajahn Fuang was Tan Jeff's teacher. So one of the teachings that uh, Ajahn Mun most of, often gave uh, was the teaching on the customs of the noble ones. It's really the teaching, one of the teachings uh, that the Buddha gave uh, that really uh, seeks to embody the spirit of the true Dhamma. And of course, Ajahn Lee often gave that talk sort of in response to uh, the way Buddhism was being practiced in Thailand at the time. So this teaching he often gave, the customs of the noble ones. So, you know, I think that this teaching is food for thought, certainly for all of us. Uh, you know, wherever we are in our involvement with the practice, with the Dharma, it's good to know what the true Dharma is what the true dharma is, what being true to the dharma is. Now, Ajahn Lee said, you know, if you're true to the dharma, the dharma will be true to you. It's a koan, you can figure it out. If you're true to the dharma, the dharma will be true to you. So the customs of the noble ones, the noble ones, those seeking a greater happiness, dedicating themselves to a greater happiness. It's really a teaching that speaks to those who are dedicating themselves to the Dharma. So these four customs. Uh, the first, to be content with the food you have. 
to be content with the food you have. You know, for monks, of course, uh, you know, traditionally, uh, the monk, uh, the food is put in the monk's bowl, and the monk uh, is content, or uh, in the spirit of the true dharma, is content with what's put in his bowl. Uh, that's the spirit, to be content with what's put in your bowl. You know, in the forest tradition, the Dhammayut order, uh, they only have one meal a day. I think we're going to do that for our next retreat. Would we be content with the food that we have? You know, when you go to the monastery, one meal, one meal a day in the morning. Following the eight precepts, no food after 12 noon. I always say that everybody really should go to Wat Metta, to the monastery, at least once. To really see, I mean, it's a very uh, profound uh, learning experience in terms of really understanding. I mean, it was just completely eye-opening for me and revelatory. And it was like, like when I went there for the first time, you know, I really understood, you know, what the true Dhamma was. But the practice of the Dhamma, the way the Buddha taught it, was, is. So I think everybody should go at least once to really kind of develop that understanding. I was once talking to uh, a dear friend who's a Dharma teacher, actually quite, a, quite a, an accomplished Dharma teacher, and, uh, and he was asking me, what's it like at the monastery? You know, tell me, he was kind of interested in going. You know, and I said, well, you know, you eat one meal a day, you sleep on the floor. He goes, I'm not going there. Are you kidding me? There's no way. Yeah, it's hard for us to be content with one meal. It's hard for us to be content with what we have. You know, I mean, we want more. You know, that's kind of, that's the spirit of our culture. We want more. I have to say, uh, our cook on this retreat has kind of spoiled this part of the retreat for me, uh, this part of the talk for me. Uh, yeah. But even here, where the food is so good, so good, you know, we may find that we don't have certain things that we're, that we're used to having. Are we content with that? We may find that we have certain, don't have certain things that we like. Are we content with that? Can we be content with what we have, with what's put on the table? And even we have three meals here. Ostensibly, we have three meals here. Uh, you know, can we be content with that? You know, when we're used to eating whenever we want to eat, anytime we want to go to the fridge, now, of course, you could stow away some things in the fridge here, but, you know, really our practice here is to have three simple meals a day. It's one of the things I said to Mary Ellen a few months ago. Simple, we want simple, you know, and I think, you know, she's done a beautiful job of that uh, and really good, too, really good. So uh, we're really grateful for uh, the food that we have and, and, and the love and the generosity uh, that's gone into preparing it.
Yeah. We're so used to like, you know, just walking down the street and grabbing a slice. You know? Wherever we go. You know, it's like wherever we go, there you are. Wherever you go, there's a pizza place in there. <laughs> My dear friend uh, Woody was the guy who turned me on to meditation. That's what we used to say in those days. Back when I was in college, turned me on to transcendental meditation more than 40 years ago. Uh, his, one of his goals in life, I guess, was to try to eat at every pizza place in New York City. You know? So, I mean, it was crazy, because like wherever we'd be, he goes, there's a pizza place, we gotta get a slice. You know, there's a place, we gotta get a slice. Now there's thousands of pizza places in New York. It was kind of fun, you know? I mean, and you know, I, I, I think he just wanted to try to eat in every place. He wasn't concerned with what was the best slice. He loved them all. So even here, we might be craving pizza. Where's the pizza? Thinking about going back. I, I had a thought. I can't wait to go back to get a slice. <laughs> yeah. so can we be content with what we have? You know, so much effort goes into uh, having more food and having better and having different. You know. One of the things that uh, you see when you follow the eight precepts, uh, you know, and you don't eat afternoon, uh, is that, you know, there's so much more time in the afternoon and in the evening to practice the Dharma. Now that's the spirit the customs of the noble ones. Number two, maybe we're getting a little bit more into the relevancy, but maybe not, is to be content with the shelter that you have. uh, Here at Powell House, uh, it's not extravagant. You know, there's a quality of simplicity to being here. Uh, I was very... uh, uh, inspired to be able to come here, uh, I felt that you know being here was a little bit more in line for us uh, with the spirit of the Dharma, the customs of the noble ones. But certainly here, you know, this place is certainly more well appointed than Wat Metta, you know, where you sleep on the floor or on a plat- wooden platform or in a tent. The monks have little shacks. One of our uh, beloved students from our group who's done this retreat for many years, was manager, uh, lives there now. You know, she's got a little shack, one room shack in the woods. You know, and I go there and I see that little shack and I go, could I be content with that? Could I be content with that? You know, I know when I walked into my room, what was that? three or four months ago when we got here, uh, when I walked into my room, you know, and I looked at the bed, well, I looked at the beds, I guess, uh, was that I'm going to have to sleep on this single bed? I'm used to a queen-size bed. You know, and there was probably the thought, I'm the teacher, I should at least have a queen-size bed. You know? You know, and then, of course, I got in the shower, 
you know, and the stream of water wasn't what I'm accustomed to. Could I be content with the trickle of somewhat warm water? Can I be content with that, really? Can I be content with that? You know, and of course, it's not just here. Can we be content with what we have in our lives, you know? Our inclination is to want more, want more, but does more bring greater happiness? And that's really the question. That's the question, you know, what the Ajans and what the spirit of the Dharma is, is to do what leads to a greater happiness. Does more lead to a greater happiness? A greater happiness, a true happiness? If I had a queen-size bed, would that lead to a greater happiness? A true happiness? About 10 years ago, uh, you know, I'd been living in my apartment probably for about 10 years at that point, and you know, I was looking a little worn, uh, you know, and I was dissatisfied with the way that it was, and I knew I wasn't going to move, so I figured I would renovate. Some of you remem- must, might re- remember when I went through that process. So I bought some new furniture and all new rugs for the floor and new things to put on the wall. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was like, there was a happiness that I felt about that, you know, that lasted a very short while, <laughs> you know? It was what we call a temporary happiness, you know? And then, after a year or so, all of that new stuff started to get worn and looked old, you know? And I spilled stuff on the rug, on the rugs that I had bought, you know? There's a real lesson in, you know, the impermanent nature of these conditioned things that we look for happiness and, you know, they can't bring a lasting happiness. Now, like I said, that was about 10 years ago, a couple of years ago, or maybe less. I was, you know, looking around at, you know, everything looks really worn. You know, maybe I should renovate again. Yeah, but I, I felt this real disenchantment with that idea of renovation, you know, because I knew it wasn't going to bring me a lasting happiness. And I knew that it was going to take time. I was going to have to go to stores and look and buy things. And I want to put my time into something that's more useful. And there was a real strong movement that, you know, that time that I would spend doing that, I could be doing something that really would lead to a greater happiness. Time is so short. Is this what I want to be spending my time on in this life? Number three is to be content with the clothing that you have. So for some of us, you know, that might be germane. Uh, for monks, it certainly is, you know, and, and you know, and, and, you know, that monks wear a very simple robe. You know, so for some of us, can we be, it may be, can, can we be content with the clothes we have? But I think, you know, we can think of like, all the material things we have. Can we be content with what the material things that we have? What we have, can we be content with that? Can we be content with the stuff that we have? Or do we want more stuff? Do we believe that more stuff will lead to happiness? Do we want better stuff? I told that story the other night, you know, of, you know, the DVDs, you know, that, you know, you know, you know the streaming is the, you know, after that whole, uh, process of, you know, the, you know, the the tape. You know, actually, I didn't go through the whole thing because first, what was it? The VCR, right? 
you know, the VCR and you go to, right? And I forgot about the VCR. I just realized I forgot about the DVD. Another whole, you know, I mean, once it, it became a DVD, you know, it's like, you, what, what's that VCR thing that, you know, I mean, and then of course, you know, Netflix and then of course streaming, you know, a few years from now it'll be, ah, could you remember back in the day when we used to do streaming? So archaic, you know? I couldn't imagine doing streaming anymore. You know, the Buddha said, even if it rained gold coins, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't have our fill of sense pleasures. Even if it rained gold coins, we wouldn't have our fill of sense pleasures. So this idea of to be content with what we have is very countercultural. It's very countercultural. The true Dharma is very countercultural. You know? We may try to fit the Dharma into our cultural scheme of values, but there's always the risk of losing its essence. So I think for all of us, you know, that's kind of a question that we have to look at, pay attention to. You know, we're not monks, we're not mendicants. You know, but we can take these customs and these principles to heart and put them to use in a way that works for us, you know. In, in many ways, with these first uh, three customs, to be content with our food, clothing, and shelter, uh, you know, can we simplify? Can we simplify in the service of uh, simplifying our lives so that we can dedicate our lives to looking for a greater happiness? That's, you know, the customs of the noble ones in a nutshell. Can simplifying be a part of our practice in our lives? One of the ways this kind of works for me is every once in a while I take a Dharma stand. You know, I pick my spots. You know, one of the ways that I've done that, well chronicled, at least from this pulpit, is uh, my, uh, my refusal, I guess you could say, to buy a smartphone. Uh, for me, and I, and, I, and I could say this, you know, it's fairly wholeheartedly, you know, it, it feels like this is one way that I can be, I can practice being content with what I have. One way that I can go against the grain of the culture and be countercultural. You know, Tom Jeff says, be countercultural, be countercultural. You know, so what can we do to be countercultural? And, I, and, I, and I'll say this again too hard, also wholeheartedly in terms of you know, my relationship to the notion of having a smartphone is I recognize the dangers in it. I recognize the dangers in it. You know, it's another thing that I'll be putting time and energy into. Another drain on my time and my energy. You know? And I want to put my time and my energy as much as I can into seeking a greater happiness. I know the dangers of that thing. You know? So... We learn to be content with what we have. Can we make it our practice? Not to put our focus on these things, food, clothing, shelter, stuff, you know, not making them our priority or at least looking at making them less of a priority. These things that can't bring 
a lasting happiness. They can't really bring a satisfactory happiness. These things that take us away from doing what we need to do so that we can know a true happiness. You know, our impulse, you know, when we kind of think about these things, and I'm no different, and the Buddha wasn't any different uh, in his time. It's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. The next question might be, well, the next question might be, can you do this? Just because you don't want to do it doesn't mean that you can't. Or the next question might be, well, what do you want to do in this life? What do you want to do in this life? I think it's really important to uh, come on retreats like this for many reasons. Uh, One important reason is, you know, we come here, we take a step back from our lives and we have an opportunity to reflect and to touch into these questions. You know, what do I want to do? What really matters? What's of real value? What's of real value? You know, we get caught up in the world, the ways of the world, and we forget these questions. We forget these questions. You know, we get caught up in the ways of the world and the ways of accumulation and more and the better this and the more of that. And we forget that maybe there's another way to live. Maybe there's another way to be. The fourth custom of the Noble Ones is that we find joy in developing our goodness. This is where we find joy in our lives, in developing our goodness. We take joy not in these external things, but rather in what we have inside of ourselves, what we have in the heart. We take joy in our goodness. Instead of looking for joy in the food, the clothing, the shelter, the stuff, we look for joy inside in what we have inside of ourselves. We take joy not in having external wealth, but in our inner wealth, our inner worth. A few years ago, I was teaching a course, I think it was at New York Insight, on merit. Uh, you know, these, these actions of, uh, uh, that are an expression of our goodness that bring joy. Uh, and, you know, I asked Han Jeff, I said, you have a good title for this course. I, I didn't want to call it Merit. I figured nobody will show, you know. <laughs> so I said, do you have a good title? He said, how about a life of inner worth? Uh-huh. A life of inner worth. You know, when I was kind of working on this talk, I think that, that idea struck me in a deeper way than I think it even it had. It sounded good. It sounded like a good title but I don't think I really quite understood it until I was started to work on this talk. A life of inner worth. This kind of life. One thing, one of the ways that Tan Jeff talks about uh, uh, comparing the joy that we get from material things to the joy that comes from developing our goodness, he said, it's like we're trading candy for gold. We're trading candy for gold. You know, the heart is pure gold. The heart is pure gold. Our goodness is pure gold. Your goodness is pure gold. That's your inner worth. That's your 
wealth, your true wealth, is what's inside. So we find joy in developing our goodness, our skillful qualities. One way to think about it is we find joy in developing uh, the 10 skillful qualities, the 10 paramis. You know, these are qualities, you know, these qualities that uh, we develop in the service of developing our goodness. They're qualities that we have. You know, we have these qualities. We have these qualities within us. They have to be developed. They have to be developed. So we take joy in our effort to develop these qualities. And that's really where the joy comes. It's the joy that we take in the effort to develop these qualities. That, you know, this is, this is the expression of our goodness. We have this goodness. We're making an effort to develop our skillful qualities. We take joy in their development. The first quality being generosity, of course, you know, which you know, really is the essence of a countercultural quality, a countercultural shift. Instead of looking for joy and happiness in uh, getting, we look for joy and happiness in giving. We take joy in our generosity. I really learned so much about uh, generosity at the monastery, going to the monastery, in particular uh, from the, uh, the Thai people uh, who live in the area who come to the monastery. There's a large Thai population in San Diego and to some extent in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, and of course it's a different culture, right? It's a different culture, this Buddhist culture uh, that places much greater value on generosity. And I really learned about generosity. And really what I learned about it is the joy of generosity, the joy in it by just kind of taking a, you know, stepping back and just observing. You know, the alms, the, the, the meal uh, in the morning begins at 8.30 and you know, the monks come down the hill with their bowls and we put a little rice in their bowls and then we bring the food up the hill and feed the monks and People bring food, you know, mostly people, you know, during the week are, uh, you know, the people who are staying there and a couple of people who may be cooks and, you know, we're cooking and everything. But sometimes in the morning, some of the Thai people come, uh, you know, and it's not a little thing to come. I mean, this monastery, some of you have been there, is out in the middle of nowhere. So you go out into the middle of nowhere and you come to this mountain and then it's 20 minutes up the mountain on a circuitous road till you get to the top, you know? And, you know, a lot of the mornings every week, you know, I mean, I, I just have this image in my mind of, uh, you know, this woman driving, this Thai woman driving, you know, her car up to, you know, pulling, you know, and getting out, you know, dressed in her business suit. You know, she, she came before she was gonna go to work, you know, walking in her high heels across the, you know, the pavement with her trays of food. Yeah. I learned so much about uh, this joy in, uh, you know, the, the dishwashing time, you know, after the meal, after the meal, and seeing how uh, the Thai folks would just take so much joy in washing the dishes, so much joy in doing that service and offering that generosity. And it really, what it brought out in me actually at first was a sense of shame, but a, a healthy sense of shame, because 
first of all, my first reaction was probably, well, it was, oh, thank God, I don't have to do the damn dishes today. You know, because like I would, I would, you know, it's like, I dreaded having to wash the dishes, you know, to do that service, you know. But I learned, I learned, I learned, I learned. You know? What I would often do at the monastery was the sweeping, the sweeping, the sweeping. And I learned to take great joy in that, take great joy in that, to the point where, you know, you sit in the morning and then you go do your chores, well, some of your chores, it's not the only time. You know, you walk down, uh, and some people go to the kitchen and other people do other things and the brooms are, you know, on the wall, uh, you know, outside of the kitchen. And I would run down the hill to make sure I was the one who got the broom to do the sweeping because I knew it was going to bring, it brought me, it was bringing me such joy to do that. I mean, I love seeing the joy in the people here in the kitchen that they're taking and, and doing that service, you know, such joy. That's the Dharma. That's what the Dharma is all about. We take joy in the goodness of others. I take joy in seeing them. I take joy in the generosity of our cook. The second quality is, is virtue, morality, ethical conduct. And, you know, this is really, we take this joy in the effort we make to practice non-harming. You know, we take joy, you know, and, and I mean, it's such a profound thing to practice non-harming, to be dedicated to non-harming. You know, it's the kind of thing in our culture, you know, there's so much value placed on so many other things, but what could be more important than practicing non-harming, than practicing non-harming all living beings? So we, you know, we, you know, you kind of have to fight your way through the cultural perceptions of what's valuable, you know, and and you know, and, and you know, that's why I say coming up here, you you know, you kind of remember well what really is valuable, you know, in practicing non-harming and following those precepts, you know. What could be more valuable than that? We take great joy in that effort that we make. It's a profound expression of our goodness. It's a profound expression of our inner worth. So it's something, you know, I mean, of course, you know, Dharma, this Dharma, my Dharma, I mean, I hope my, these talks are practical. Take joy in your goodness. Take joy in your generosity. Take joy in the way that you practice non-harming. Not just here, but in the world. I mean, there's a lot of harming that's going on in the world. You know, not just the harming of killing, but there's a lot of that or stealing, but the harming of unskillful speech, you know, the harming that people do to themselves and others by uh, engaging in illicit sex or taking intoxicants. The third quality that we take joy in, which seems kind of strange, is we take joy in renunciation. You know, and of course the definition, you know, I've kind of already spoke to this a little bit, but the definition of renunciation, it's important to understand what the Buddhist definition is. We let go of a lesser happiness for a greater happiness. So really essentially what renunciation is, we let go of the temporary happiness that comes from acquiring sense pleasure for the greater happiness that comes from training the mind. You know, the Buddhist story around renunciation, you know, we can really probably identify. He said, you know, when I first, the, the idea of renunciation, think of the Buddha, he, you know, had his princely kingdom, 
you know, the, when he first uh, considered the idea of renunciation, he said, my heart didn't leap up at the idea. You know? He said, I didn't really take joy. I didn't appreciate. What's joy? We appreciate. I didn't take joy in renunciation until I practiced it and saw the benefits in it. You know, as we practice here, I think we see the benefits of renunciation. We see the benefits of renunciation as we hear and as we practice. One of the, the great stories uh, that's told in the canon is of King Badia. It's interesting because, like, you know, at the time of the Buddha, a lot of the kings became monks. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? <laughs> in our culture. So King Badia became a monk, and the story is, you know, one day he was sitting up in the tree doing his daily contemplation, his meditation, and he was uttering, he was speaking, you know, what would you do if you saw somebody out there meditating and, you know, and he was going, what bliss, what bliss, you know, and some of the other monks saw him doing that, you know. They did what any self-respecting monk would do. They reported him to the, the, the Buddha. You know? and the Buddha called him in, you know, and he said to him, he said, you know, they, I, everybody says, you know, you're just meditating and you're saying, what bliss, what bliss? Because they thought, what the monks thought was, he's thinking, you know, he's in, a, he's in a narrative about the days when he was a king. That's what they thought, you know, he's thinking about all the stuff that he had before that he didn't have anymore. So, you know, the Buddha said, is, is that what's going on? And he said, no, it's such a bliss not to have to deal with all that stuff anymore. The burden of having to maintain the kingdom. You know, the burden having to maintain the kingdom that's built on impermanent things, things that don't last. And we all kind of have our, our own little kingdoms, you know, that we've kind of given up for these eight days. There's a great joy in that. I remember a few years ago on one of these retreats, uh, you know, I was doing my my daily, you know, meetings with the, the yogis and one of our beloved yogis. Most of you know, probably know who the he, who he is. Came in. It's about this time in the retreat, maybe the sixth, seventh day, and. Uh, came in and he sat down in front of me and he had this huge grin on his face. And I, was, I was like, what the hell is going on? I mean, he was just, his cheeks were splitting. And he just sat down and he looked at me and he said, what bliss, what bliss. <laughs> I remember years ago when I, when I renounced my car you know, and it was like, what bliss, what bliss. I don't have to deal with the mechanic and every, you know, changing the oil. You know, I, you know, one of the, one of the blisses of renunciation, the joys of renunciation that I'm feeling on this retreat is, you know, the, the, the bliss of not having to turn on the TV and look at what we see on the TV. It's like, oh, what a blessing that is. The third category is truthfulness. You know, and when we take joy in our truthfulness, one of the profound ways that we do this, which again may seem quite odd, is we take joy in our efforts to be truthful about our unskillful qualities. That's really the heart of truthfulness. We're truthful 
with ourselves, about ourselves, in terms of our aversion and our desire and our delusion, because that's the way to the end of those things, is to be truthful. You know, we're truthful. We see the aversion in the mind. You know, we see the desire, the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, this is really where courage comes in in the Dharma. You know, the courage to look at our suffering, the courage to look at what we may not want to look at. It takes great courage to do that. You know, the things I've been talking about the last night, those aren't small things. It takes great courage. It takes great courage, and we need to acknowledge that. It takes great courage to look at these things in the mind. So we can take great joy in knowing, you know, we're doing this work. Michelle McDonald said, you know, this is, you know, this is the only, where else can you, you know, go to a retreat, and, you know, and then you come home to your partner and you know, your partner says, how was it? And you say, it was great. I saw my aversion. And we take joy in our effort and our determination. You know, we take joy in the effort that we put into our practice. That's really where the joy is in the practice, is in the effort that we put in, that we're doing what has to be done. We may not be glowing with the first jhana, and we may, you know, but we're making the effort. We're making the effort. You know, a few years ago, I gave a talk on being a happy warrior. You know, we're happy warriors. We're happy warriors. I was thinking after the talk I gave last night, and I, I was, uh, you know, I talked about looking at suffering and uh, that it was hard because you have to look at it right in the moment, not to think about it, but to look at it right in the moment when it's happening, to, to meet it, you know? And, 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 you know, and what's that sometimes called is that what we're trying to develop is warrior knowledge. You know, reading about things is scribe knowledge. But, you know, that knowledge of looking at things and understanding things that are painful are suffering in the moment. That's warrior knowledge. You know, we can take pride in being happy warriors. We meet our experience. We're on this journey to ourselves, home to ourselves. What an incredible journey. We talked about that in one of the groups the other day. You know, people talking about how difficult and the things that were coming up, you know, and what struck me, and I said at the end, is like, wow, you know, all you guys are on this incredible journey. How profound that is. It's hard, I know, but, you know, there's such a joy in in being able to be on this journey and in the goodness that we have that's being expressed here. Think about these things as we go through these days. Think about these things when we go home. Think about these things always. These are the things that we want to think about. This is our goodness right here in this effort that we're making. It has to be acknowledged. We have to take joy in our goodness, take joy in our determination that we're making the effort over the long haul. You know, people kind of always kid me about saying, you know, see it through, see it through. You know, I teach a course, see it through to the end. There's a great Dharma joy. I learned that from one of my teachers years and years ago. Take joy in seeing things through to the end. Knowing that we're doing this, making this noble effort. Difficult and rare. 
What goodness we have in doing this. What goodness. What goodness you have in doing this. I mean, there's a lot more joy that comes from recognizing your goodness than comes from all the stuff that you can get ever, 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 ever. It's the greatest joy you'll know. Take joy in our discernment, love in our loving kindness. We're making the effort to see what's skillful and unskillful, to purify our thinking. I mean, that always astonishes me, you know, this effort that we make to purify our thinking, you know, to abandon thoughts that are informed by desire and aversion, to cultivate thoughts that are informed by love and compassion. You know, we do this so assiduously in this practice, in this group, you know? You know, and it, 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 I think we take for granted, you know, the goodness that's being expressed in that effort that we're making. You know, the goodness that's being expressed in our efforts to act with loving kindness. You know, as a teacher, I can, you know, I have the blessing of taking joy in other people's goodness and, and the development of their goodness. And, you know, I've taken such joy over the years in uh, the ways that people have learned to develop the skills of heedfulness uh, and skillful intention in the service of relating with love and compassion to those in their lives. Particularly, and I always kind of talk about this, uh, not to single out any group, but particularly one of the areas, and I, and I think it has to do with my own history, but maybe just it's an important area in any case. I've taken such joy in uh, the effort that parents have made to bring up their children, to relate to their children with love and compassion. You know, it's such a beautiful thing to see, you know, you know developing these skills. You know, parents who come to the classes, you know, and, and you know, it's hard when you're a parent, you know, all the time and effort that goes into that, but you know, I'm gonna show up because this is important. I want to, you know, I wanna relate to my kids and be with my kids with love and with compassion. The other side of that is, you know, the, the way that many of us have learned to relate to our parents. Yeah. Uh, maybe our dying parents or the way that we've learned to relate to those who are dying. I mean, there's a great, uh, it's a great expression of goodness to, uh, to be with those who are dying and to be there for them and to uh, support them in their efforts to move on. It's very important, you know, it's very important. It's one of the things when my mother was dying, you know, that uh, was I was most concerned with in terms of what I could do was uh, could I help her move on with some peace in the heart? You know, so you know, I would just sit beside the bed and say, oh, we're going to meditate now. You know, we're going to meditate. You know, we just sit there in silence. You know. you know, from my aspect, you know, I mean, I always had a hard time getting along with my parents and my mother, you know, being able to do that, you know, being able to do that, you know, this really great joy in that. And lastly, patience and equanimity. You know, we can 
be with things that are difficult. You know, this is the mark of uh, you know equanimity. Uh, equanimity, you know, to be able to be with things that are difficult. This is one of the great marks of uh, a student of the Dhamma. You know, one of the great marks of uh, of our goodness is that we have the strength to be with what's difficult. We have the strength to be with what's difficult. We have the strength to be with sickness, aging, and death, separation. Separation, being separated from all that is dear and appealing. It takes great strength, great courage. You know, we're developing that strength in our practice. Such a profound aspect of our goodness. So what we have that's of most value is our goodness. Now that's the message of this teaching of the customs of the noble ones. You know, what we have that's of most value is our goodness. Our greatest worth is our inner worth. And you have it. You have it. It's your birthright. It's your birthright. As a human being, you have this goodness, this inherent potential within you. You know, and you've developed it. You're developing it here. You know, part of our problem is we forget. We forget our goodness. We've lost sight of our goodness. Actually, I don't think it's part of our problem. I think it's our biggest problem. It's our biggest problem. Yeah, that we don't embrace our goodness, that we don't acknowledge it, that we don't recognize it, that we don't recognize it. It's there. It's there. Our problem is we need to recognize it. And we tend to lose sight of what's most valuable that we have, you know, and we settle and look for happiness that's a lesser happiness in food, clothing, shelter, jobs, relationships, apartments, stuff. We sell ourselves short. We sell ourselves short. We can know a greater happiness in this life. There's no question. It's hard because, for one thing, you're going against the cultural stream. So we have to come to remember what's most valuable, what's most important. That's why, you know, we come here. You know, it's, you know, it's important to come here, as I said, so that, you know, we can take a step back from the world and remember our goodness, remember what we have that's most important, remember what we have that will lead us to the greatest joy that we can know in this life. We already have it. We already have it. You know, it's making it our priority to look for happiness there, right there in what's inside of ourselves and what's inside the heart, in the heart, in our goodness. You know, we're just looking, you know, as I've kind of said, in the wrong places. It's right there inside. It's right there inside. You know, what did T.S. Eliot say? The end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we began and know the place for the first time. So we come here, we take a step back, we see things more clearly, we remember what we've forgotten. You know, I, you know I've just had some of those moments here like, oh yeah, that's, what, that's what's important. That's what really matters. That's what I have that's good. I have that. We forget that. And we come here so we can remember our goodness, so that we can recognize it more clearly. And of course, we come here and we develop it. We polish the heart. 
We polish the heart, and that's what some of the Thai teachers say. We polish the heart. You know, we clear away what's obscuring the heart. You know, those defilements. We clear them away. We polish the heart so that we can find our way into our goodness, our inner worth. Everything we do here is in the service of getting to the heart. Getting to the heart. That's what matters. We cultivate the breath, the body. We cultivate ease and pleasure. We've talked about this. You know, it's an expression of love for ourselves. We're taking care of ourselves. We're bowing to our goodness. We're bowing to our goodness. You know, in our practice of meditation, we see more clearly into the truth of our goodness. You know, kind of just backtracking to what I just said. Uh, you know, I remember this retreat I did a few years ago, a self-retreat. And it was just on this retreat for, you know, you never know what's going to happen on a retreat, right? And I just, right from the beginning, I just kind of went into real pleasure. You know, just really went, you know, and it was like 10 days of just soaking in that pleasure, you know. And at some point during that retreat, I sat down to meditate one day and I, you know, brightened the mind and it was like, wow, you have a real goodness. You have a real goodness. And I think a lot of it came from doing what I did in terms of, you know, taking good care of myself and loving myself and embracing myself through that practice of concentration and developing inner ease and pleasure. After so many years of abusing the body and abusing the heart and mind to take care of ourselves, to take care of myself. You have a goodness. You have a goodness. Take good care of yourself. Make the most of this life. We meditate, we practice concentration, you know, so that we can maintain a center in our lives and put that to good use in paying attention to our actions, being heedful, you know, seeing what we're doing that's unskillful, abandoning it, and taking action that's skillful. The concentration is the proximate cause of the purification of goodness. The more concentration you develop, the more center you have, the more you're able to be heedful and cultivate your goodness. So in being here, you know, we're being true to the Dharma. We're practicing the true Dharma. We're being true to ourselves. That's really what that means. We're being true to the Dharma inside of ourselves. The Dharma is inside of yourselves. We're being true to the Dharma in our hearts. So our task is to remember what's true. To remember the truth of our goodness. So let's just sit for a moment. (laughs) 